Welcome to Charity Talks. Today I spoke with Dr. James Deutsch, the CEO of Rainforest Trust. For more than 30 years, its primary mission has been to raise funds to make grants in Africa, Asia, and South America to preserve and protect lands and habitats there. By protecting those lands, Rainforest Trust has saved many endangered species from extinction. But its impact goes well beyond that. By protecting rainforests, Rainforest Trust is helping to ameliorate the effects of climate change since rainforests keep carbon locked up in their wood and soil while removing excess CO2 from the air. These are just some of the positive impacts that Rainforest Trust's conservation efforts have had. So I think you will enjoy hearing from James about all of the amazing work that the Trust is engaged in. Welcome to Charity Talks. I'm Brooke Denevsky, and today I'm speaking with Dr. James Deutsch, the CEO of Rainforest Trust. James, thank you for coming on the podcast. Hey, well, thank you so much for having me, Brooke. So to start, can you tell us about yourself, your background, and how you came to Rainforest Trust? Sure. Um, I grew up in New York City, not a place known for its wild nature, Um, and Although I was a bit interested in wildlife as a kid, I really got hooked um, when I was a college student and spent two summers volunteering for a project that was counting black rhinos in Kenya in the 1980s when they were all being shot, actually, and killed. Um, And then I went back to Africa to watch antelopes for my PhD, um, and then back to Africa again um, to work for a great organization called Wildlife Conservation Society. And when my current job was advertised to head Rainforest Trust three years, exactly three years ago, I was super, super excited because this is the only organization in the U.S. which is focused entirely on creating new national parks and other protected areas in the tropics. And, um, and in the end, um, creating protected areas is there are many, 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 many things we have to do in order to successfully achieve conservation and change our relationship with the natural world. But if you were to identify one, which is the first critical step and catalyzes all the others, then you could do worse than creating national parks and nature reserves. And obviously, you know, I would love to hear more about Rainforest Trust. So can you start by sharing what the mission is? Sure. We we are uh, we we raise money mostly from private individuals, um, in order to make grants to nonprofit organizations in Africa and Asia and Latin America that in the tropics and subtropics, which by the way is where most of the biodiversity of the world is, and we make grants only for one purpose, which is to um, create or expand protected or conserved areas. So. Um, not only national parks, but also private nature reserves and also community areas and indigenous lands. Um, and we've been doing that, um, that, that sole mission of protecting space, protecting land, protecting acres since our founding in 1988. And for many years, we were small because people somehow didn't cotton on to the fact that that was probably the single most important mission in conservation. And all that I'm kind of excited to say has changed. I, I just had the privilege of um, popping in on the Global Biodiversity Conference in Montreal um, the end of last year. 
And the most important thing that happened there was 196 countries agreed that by 2030, they would have protected 30% of the entire Earth's land and waters. Um, and that put the creation and expansion of protected areas right at the top of the global agenda for conservation, which is exactly where it should be. Yeah, and I think to understand the extent of the work that you all are doing, it's important to understand the problem itself. And so can you discuss the extent of the problem that certain habitats and wildlife are facing? Sure. So the leading experts, um, an organization called ICBIS, the International Plant, anyway, I won't even try, <laughs> um, estimate that about 1 million species of plants and animals are at serious risk of extinction. So that's, there's somewhere between, we think there's somewhere between five and 10 million species of plants and animals on earth. So that's somewhere between 10 and 20% are at risk from extinction. And they also recognize that although there are multiple factors that contribute to that, there's climate change, there's the fact that we kill and eat too many things, but the single biggest cause is in fact loss of habitat deforestation, um, the draining of swamps, et cetera. Um, and so our mission really is focused on that core threat, which is the loss of habitat. And I mean, we'll definitely talk about a lot of different aspects of what you do, but something I'm curious about starting with is how does Rainforest Trust work to save species from extinction? We, we start off with data on on the state of species all over the world. And we rely very heavily on a data set called the Red List, um, which, which you and some of your listeners may have run into. The Red List is a list of all of the species which are known to be facing extinction. And it puts them in different categories depending on how threatened they are. The, the most threatened are the critically endangered. It's not exhaustive. It's it's very good for 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 mammals and birds and some species of trees and amphibians, but it's not great for insects, for example, because it's hard to figure out what the status of each species is. You have to do research on how many of them are and what the decline is, et cetera. But the Red List also includes maps of where these species are thought to still live. They're not perfect, but, but they're good, and what the threats facing them are. And so the first thing we do is to consult those maps and go to the places where the most endangered species are. Um, and that's places like the Andes Mountains um, along the edge of the Amazon basin in, in South America, or um, some place called the Albertine Rift, the, the Rift Valley with, um, which, with Lake Victoria and Tanganyika and Malawi in, in East Africa, um, or the Anamite Mountains, a spectacular rugged coral mountains um, in on the border between Laos and Vietnam. And then there we look for the best organizations, the best local organizations. And the thing about local organizations is that they're not going anywhere. They, they, they are there for the duration and they're committed to the place. And so we sometimes work with international organizations, but we prefer to work with local ones. Um, so we try to find out who the best local organizations, local conservationists are, and where's the greatest opportunity to create new parks and protected areas in the most important places? Um, and then we screen the organizations and make sure that they're not going to steal the money and that they have a good track record. 
We look at, I mean, amazingly these days, you can look at deforestation over the whole world through an amazing website called Global Forest Watch, which your your listeners can Google and play around with. Um, using that for no money, you can you can actually look and see where deforestation is occurring and where it's not. You can go to the places that greatest risk of deforestation. And you can also say, okay, if a nonprofit's been working in a place for 20 years, how are they doing? What's the deforestation rate there? So we checked and make sure that these are good organizations with a track record of success. And then um, we work with them on an application for funding. And then um, and then we make a grant and provide advice and support if, if necessary, bring in third-party technical advisors to help them out with technical things like how do you create a carbon offset project to support the work in the long run, and then follow up and make sure it's working. And since you bring up this collaborative aspect of your work, I'm curious, can you discuss some of the strategic partnerships that Rainforest Trust has entered into with conservationists? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't do anything alone. Everything is through partnerships. And 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 we have a whole variety of different kinds of partnerships. So um, to take one example, probably our longest running partner with whom we have the most projects implementing on the ground is a local nonprofit in Ecuador called Ho- Ecuador called Hokotoko, which actually our president emeritus, Bob Ridgely, helped to found. And Hokotoko has sponsored has actually bought land in the Andes, which again is probably the place on earth that has the most endangered species um, on land and used those to create private nature reserves. Not unlike say if people have ever been to local nature reserves in the United States run by the Nature Conservancy or another local land trust, that kind of thing. They create private nature reserves and and they've created over a half dozen of them with our support. Um, and then they hire local people to patrol them and manage them. Tourists come in from from other countries because these places have among the most spectacular and rare birds on earth. And it's really working. Um, and these places are are probably the best conserved places in the entire Andes. So anyway, so that's that's a typical partnership with what we call an implementing partner, a local NGO that's that's doing the hard work on the ground and that we're just privileged to support. Um, but lots of other kinds of partnerships. We're working on a new partnership with um, an organization called the International Land Coalition, which is an umbrella group representing indigenous peoples organizations around the world. And, um, you know, I don't know how much your your listeners have heard about indigenous peoples groups, but there are tremendous moves to empower indigenous people, whether that's in First Nations people in Canada or or Native Americans in the United States or the original tribes of the Amazon to empower them. Because in many cases, these people have been living in um, with nature and valuing nature for thousands of years. And um, and in many cases, not all, but in many cases, their communities want to continue living traditional lives um, as they have. And they see their traditional cultures and their traditional livelihoods threatened by modernization and threatened by by development and in, in particular industrial development by things like clear cutting for agriculture. So many, I, I would say much of the conservation community now realizes that really our greatest opportunity to um, expand the areas of the world that 
um, will effectively conserve nature, probably the single greatest opportunity over the next five or 10 years is to empower indigenous people as guardians of nature where where that's what they want to do and they have a successful tradition of doing it. So so International Land Coalition is a new partner for us um, who support smaller indigenous people's organizations and will help us to work with them to to achieve what they want to achieve. Um, so super exciting. And then, um, you know, I could I could mention any number, but I'm, I'm thinking of like completely different kinds of partnerships. So the third one then I'll mention is a partnership with an organization called the High Ambition Coalition, which is a coalition of those nations which in advance of that Montreal meeting decided that they wanted to save 30% of their lands and waters by 2030, regardless of what the international community said. And they're now 116 nations signed on to that, including the U.S., amazingly, under the current administration, and um, but led by Costa Rica. And so we are partnering with them to, to see how we can help their members, um, where their members are tropical or subtropical developing countries, help their members to achieve saving 30% of their country for conservation, how they can ensure that it's in the right place and done well, how to ensure that it respects human rights and doesn't step on the rights of any people, and also how they can recruit other countries to join them in that movement. Um, so super exciting. Very exciting. And obviously, you have so many different amazing programs. And so I just want to give you a chance to discuss a particular program or programs that have been meaningful for you. It's a it's an evil question, right? It's like ask which of your children is your favorite. So I, I'm not going to try to be fair. I'll just mm -hmm. whatever comes I, to mind. It's easier just to do it off the top of your head, yeah. right? So I'm going to mention, uh, of course. So, so I think I mentioned right at the beginning that a lot of my personal conservation experience comes from Africa. So maybe it'll be a little Africa biased. So the first the first person I'm going to mention is an amazing woman named Rachel Ikeme. Um, who is Nigerian and who has her own nonprofit, um, which works in several places in Nigeria, but most notably in the Niger Delta. So again, to your listeners, if some will know and some won't, the Niger Delta is a huge wetland where the Niger River, the third largest river in Africa, meets the Atlantic Ocean. And it is the largest wetland in Africa, but it's also the largest area of oil production in Africa. And it's an ecological disaster um, between oil spills and um, sabotaged oil pipelines and conflict between the state government, the federal government and local people um, who feel that they're not only having the oil stolen from them, but having their traditional fisheries destroyed and their traditional um, forests destroyed. So Rachel has a program which um, has as its flagship um, the Niger Delta Red Colobus, which is a species of monkey, which is only found in one tiny place in the Niger Delta. Um, and she's originally a primatologist, but this program has become much, about much more than a monkey. It's become about the communities and their desire to save the Niger Delta from this terrible fate that it's suffering. Um, and she's starting small. Um, she's created a small community-based, government-recognized protected area in the middle of the Niger Delta, which protects the largest remaining population of the monkeys. But of course, her vision is much larger. And, um, you know, we hope over time it will grow and, and, and eventually make a 
have a serious impact on the Delta as a whole. So other examples, so I, I said I'd focus on Africa, but I won't focus too much on Africa. Another example, a world away on the edge of the Bolivian Amazon, um, we're partnering with an organization called Nature Bolivia. And they came to us two years ago with the desire to create a local national park, a, a local park, legally create over a huge area, 2 million acres, that's 10 times the size of New York City, with about 2,500 indigenous people living within it who would remain. But they wanted to do this because it's right on the edge of the deforestation frontier in the Amazon. So the year they applied to us, we looked back on Global Forest Watch, and something like 17% of the area had actually been burned by land-grabbing invaders who come in and burn the forest in order to in order to, to 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 bring in cows or plant crops um just that year and and we immediately we, we we initially both our board and our staff thought this project is a recipe for failure 17 percent of the area has been deforested just this year and we went back and we spent a lot of time we visited and we said well do you think you can actually hold the line on deforestation here? And and they said, with your support, they thought they could. They, they The community were completely committed. They wanted to learn firefighting. They wanted to get government to support to keep the land grabbers out. And so eventually we decided to take the risk and do it. And And within a year, the deforestation rate within the area had gone down by 80%. So there's still some deforestation having, happening, but a fifth as much. And um, it's pretty exciting. If we can replicate that across the deforestation frontier in the Amazon, we can really make a difference. And I know another aspect of what you do, which is really important as well, is your work with storing carbon and, of course, with climate change. It's really essential. So can you explain how rainforests yeah, keep sure. carbon stored away? Yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, um, your your wooden bookshelf um, and the lettuce in your fridge um, and, you know, the corn in your corn muffin are all made out of carbon, right? Plant, plants are machines that take carbon out of the air and CO2 and use solar energy to turn it into wood and other materials. And so rainforests, which are among the world's largest and hardest plants, um, growing in the most productive places on earth because of all the water and all the sun um, are absolutely critical to the future of the climate of the world for, for, for two main reasons. The first is that when you cut them down, all the carbon which is stored in the wood eventually leaks out into the air. If you burn them, it leaks out immediately. If you build houses with them or furniture, then it takes a little while, but some of the sawdust goes immediately. And then the rest eventually when the thing ends up in the landfill goes or when the house is knocked down. And that deforestation alone already amounts for something like 10% of all carbon emissions, human-induced carbon emissions. So 10% of the entire emissions problem is, is just deforestation. I mean, arguably one of the easiest 10% to solve. Um, but then second, healthy forests, and in particular healthy rainforests, actually sequester carbon. They actually pull carbon out of the atmosphere um, as they go about turning it into wood. And, and, and then when their roots and their wood and their leaves 
I mean, if, if you've ever walked around even in a temperate forest that hasn't been carefully tended, like there's dead wood everywhere, right? Dead wood and dead leaves everywhere. And I mean, we're here in Virginia and if, if you, you know, you can see people are always trying to clean it up. Don't clean it up. Just leave it. Let it, um, let it actually accumulate because what's happening there is that the wood and the leaves, um, they're falling on the ground. Some of them are decaying away and going back into the air, but some of it doesn't decay, especially if it's wet. Um, and that then becomes soil. And eventually it gets locked up in the earth. And that's actually how our fossil fuels got there, right? I mean, the, the, the coal and the oil and the gas that we burn is in fact, um, is in fact trees from two billion years ago that never quite fully decomposed, just like the ones now. So, so healthy forests, there are a lot of things, how much they sequester depends with different forests. But for example, mangroves, um, the forests that grow in salt water on the edge of the, uh, on the, on the edge of the continents in the tropics, um, mangroves can sequester as much as a ton of carbon per hectare per year, which means that 10 hectares of mangroves can actually suck all the carbon that one of us wasteful Americans dump into the air each year back out again safely. So for at least both those reasons, um, we can't stop climate change without saving tropical forests. And of course, I'd love to also hear, you already discussed some really great stories, but can you describe some additional success stories that Rainforest Trust has had? Well, just, here's an easy one. Yesterday, yeah. we got word that at the very end of the year, I think it was December 26, 27, um, the president of the Republic of Congo, which is Little Congo, Congo Brazzaville in Central Africa, had signed into law the decree creating Ogue Lakete National Park, a two million acre um, park of savanna and rainforest um, on the edge of the Congo Basin, which has gorillas and chimpanzees and forest elephants. And in fact, the last lone remaining lion in Central America, we actually have to try to find the companion for him. So that was super exciting. Um, so that's the latest success story. There are lots of others. Um, one that sticks in my mind, again, I go back to the Andes and Amazon, but it, to Peru, a different country, we've, we have a longstanding partner called CEDIA, the Center for the Development of the Indigenous Amazon in Peru. Um, and with our support, they've obtained and provided land title for over 6 million acres um, for indigenous people in Peru, um, all over the country really extraordinary at at a cost of one or two dollars per per acre um and the deforestation rates in those areas are comparable to the national parks in peru and and something like um like a sixth the rate of deforestation in unprotected land wow yeah and since you are doing such great work of course i have to ask how can those who want to help best do so yeah no it's a good question i mean so some of your listeners maybe not that many, have a little bit of spare cash. Um, and for people who are able to support financially, there really is no more cost-effective way to save biodiversity and prevent climate change than, than, than supporting expansion of protected areas. I mean, I've already described that, that, that it can cost as little in the case of SETIA as as a dollar or two dollars per acre, more often five or ten, some of the projects a little bit more. So it means that, you know, it means that even a $250 donation 
targeted to the right project and with minimal overheads of any kind can actually make a significant difference on the ground. But acknowledging that some of your listeners may not be in a position to support financially, there's lots of other stuff that people can do too. The first is to um, to help build a global constituency for nature generally and rainforests more particularly. Social media is a great way to do that. Um, Sharing the link to this podcast with your friends and contacts via social media is a great way, a, a really simple and great way to get more people engaged and recruit people to 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 this cause. Um, of course, you know, many people, we, we mentioned Greta, I, I, oh, I guess I mentioned Greta Thunberg to you before yeah. the beginning of the interview. So one of the things we occasionally do is um, our donors give us money to um, to sponsor the science and the exploration in order to to identify for science new species as a first step towards conserving them and conserving the rainforest where they're found. And last year, our chair actually sponsored the, the scientific um, description of a new frog species from Ecuador. But then instead of naming it after himself, he, he asked that we name it after Greta Thunberg. And she said, sure. <laughs> and so it became something, something Greta Thunberg I. And... Um, and it got great publicity, um, not that she needs it, um, but also great publicity for the forest and and the frog and and the cause. And of course, she's an example of for for. I mean, I, I'll never be a Greta Thunberg. I don't know about you, but it it is an example of how devotion, commitment, and courage can move mountains, uh, whoever you are. Very true. And lastly, is there anything else that you'd like to add or even reiterate about Rainforest Trust that we've maybe not covered or anything really? I'll only say that it's it's very easy to to be seriously depressed about nature and conservation. But last year ended on a really positive note. The elections in Brazil brought in a new president who supports um, saving the Amazon is committed to zero deforestation in Brazil by the end of the decade and seems to mean it, although it won't be easy. Um, and then 196 countries met in Montreal and agreed that a third of the world needs to be nature reserves by, by the end of this decade, um, which many of us never thought could be possible. So there is a realization that um, that our own future is only going to be assured, let alone pleasant, um, if we reinvent our relationship with nature. And um, it's an exciting time to be alive. Um, it's probably our last chance to do this, but also, um, also it's it's starting to work, and and we and and we finally know how to do it. So. Um, so this is not a time to be depressed. It's a time to get engaged. Well, thank you so much again for coming on today. I really appreciate it. And I think listeners have a lot to hopefully learn about and explore in terms of what you do and everything. So thank you. Well, it was super fun. Um, uh, people should come on our website. They can write to us at info at rainforesttrust.org. And we'd, be, we'd love to hear their thoughts or answer their questions. And we're really grateful for the opportunity to to chat with you and, and all of your listeners about what we think is the most important issue on earth.